0: The shadiest thing you've ever done.
1: I'm just going to, go to keep go
0: go. <laughs> While we're talking, bye. <laughs> Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them, or occasionally over Zoom. I'm Gabrielle Bates.
2: I'm Dujita Ha. I'm looking out my window to search for crow's heels.
0: <laughs> Last week, we talked with my longtime poetry mentor and dear friend, Kecha Kuypers, about marriage, the messy mundane, and moving toward discomfort. For this episode, we're talking about the poem Quarantine by Yvonne Boland. And right.
3: see you there.
1: <laughs> Catch you on the flip side.
0: See you on the other side. <laughs> this is a
3: Van Bolan's quarantine. In the worst hour of the worst season, of the worst year of a whole people, a man set out from the workhouse with his wife. He was walking, they were both walking north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. He lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like that, west and west and north until at nightfall, under freezing stars, they arrived. In the morning, they were both found dead, of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history. But her feet were held against his breastbone. The last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. Let no love poem ever come to this threshold there is no place here for the inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body there's only time for this merciless inventory their death together in the winter of 1847 also what they suffered how they lived and what there is between a man and woman and in which darkness it can best be proved.
2: Um, can you just talk about why you wanted us to talk about this problem today?
3: Yes, I can. Um, <laughs> I, you know, um, hold on, I just have to catch myself for a minute. Um, I think sometimes our relationships with mentors are like glancing blows and we can almost glimpse what that person could have been to us Mm. Um, if one small thing had been different. And it's interesting because one of the things a fan said in workshop once that I'll never um, get past that I'll always remember her saying is that a poem can um, just be completely derailed by one tiny choice. You make one tiny choice and the further you get away from that choice in the poem, the wider becomes the gap between what a perfect, wonderful poem that could have been and the total crap that you end up writing and and i feel like in some ways like that can happen in a relationship with a mentor as well and i when a van um passed away last month um i it all came back to me the experience of being a stagner and and the glancing blows of those interactions with her and she for me was a really challenging person um her workshops, she would never (laughs) really tell you what she thought of your poems. And if you tried to press her on what she thought of your poems, it was almost worse. Then she was like, really, I'm not going to say anything more about this. Um, She wouldn't sort of like clarify her comments. She would come and say, Oh, can you tell me more about like what you mean? You were talking about this third stanza. Mm." Hmm. So she was a really difficult and challenging person. Somebody who, um in many ways was i found really hard to get to know and yet my admiration for her was immense right just bottomless and um and she is someone whose work and life had inspired me from my earliest experiences of poetry um which happened uh in my freshman year of college really was when I first came to poetry and um and I fell in love with her poems. Um and and in love with the story of of what kind of writer she wanted to be. And she was incredibly rebellious. Um both in terms of of conventions on the page and um and 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 conventions within uh the you know the social structures of 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 the literary world right um and this poem she wrote many poems that were political she wrote many poems that um you know illuminated the ugly right um and and i i love this one as i said because i can remember hearing her read it and I can remember the sound of her voice and, and inventory, she pronounced it, um, inventory (laughs) and, um, you know, kind of like, it's not garage, it's garage and, um, not vitamins, vitamins. And, um, so I, I can remember, I can remember her accent. I can remember, um, yeah her the intonation and um and I think one of the things that I loved about her poems is that they were often they were often domestic and and um took place maybe in in something that felt like a common everyday setting and yet um they were contrary he was a contrarian and and I loved that quiet rebelliousness and the sneaky rebelliousness that you had to pay attention to see how angry she was, to understand the conviction in those quiet poems. Um, so I, I love that about, about this poem and about all her work. Um, but even though I didn't get to have the mentorship with her that I longed for. Um, I, I feel such kinship with her and, and miss and miss her.
1: That, yeah. Thank you.
0: That was beautiful. Thank you for mm-hmm. sharing that background for this. I'm, I'm so drawn to this poem, and I mean, for obvious reasons, in this moment of quarantines and social distancing, it's, we're talking about how it's like almost too perfect for this moment, like it's just the right poem to talk about, Um, and there's a reason that lots of people were sharing it around um, after she passed away. I'm so fascinated by how she moves back and forth between this really wide lens of like the worst season for a whole people and this idea of like toxins of a whole history, back and forth with this very zoomed in look at this couple. And and it, I love that it's not a, like, I'm gonna start big and then I'm gonna end small. And it's not that I'm gonna start small and I'm gonna end big it's always back and forth throughout this poem. It's, it's she refuses to make that an easy, like we were talking about in our last episode, an easy binary. Like these things are so interwoven in this poem. Um, the couple, the individual within this worst hour of a worst season, of a worst year, of a whole people. Um, and I, I just find that so powerful and, um, affecting.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I love to, um, that penultimate stanza, uh, you know, the failure of a poem, Yeah. right. And, and yet the reaching that the poem must do and mm-hmm. called to write a poem that will fail, but that reaches towards something. Right. This poem cannot accomplish what a love poem accomplishes. It cannot accomplish the praise of a body. It cannot, you know, do justice to this horror. And yet I must write this poem.
1: Yeah. And there's this, like, it's so funny that that's also the place where the superlative comes back, Where I Like let no love poem ever come to this threshold. You know, there's no place here for the inexact, like that the failure is couched in the, like, resurrection of a superlative feels like a very, um, I don't know, it it, it feels like the acknowledgement of the failure is bigger, especially to, like, start the poem in this, like, really sort of overtly hyperbolic way, and then to, like, hit that tone again and be, like, but, like, that's not it, you know? Um, Yeah. I think
2: there's something in uh, Again, that same stanza, right? The let no love poem ever come to this threshold that is causing a lot of tension because this poem is reaching that threshold. It's wanting not to reach, right? Mm -hmm. It's a love poem, obviously, right? But it's reaching, it's saying no love poem can do this thing. And yet it's a love poem doing that Mm -hmm. thing, right? That that tension of wanting to outright say nothing can ever be the actual gesture you're trying to gesture towards, right? But then again, this poem is the gesture (laughs) that we're talking about, right? There's no place here for the inexact, and yet she has been so exact in her language, right? And so there's a tension, right, within that one stanza that is illuminating all the tensions in the poem that I think is really fantastic.
0: I'm so interested in what comes after what's couched as this merciless inventory, because when I'm first reading it, for some reason I'm expecting something really particular and concrete to come after that. Like I'm thinking there's only time for this merciless inventory, you know, like her shoe on the ground or whatever it is. But what she gives us is this massive impossible collapsing of like what they suffered, Mm -hmm. how they lived, like these shorthands that are so massive, like that's the merciless inventory to her in this poem, which I find so surprising as a reader.
3: Yeah. I think, too, for me, not only am I surprised by what's in the Merciless inventory, I'm surprised that there is another stanza.
0: Because <laughs> I
3: think so many other poets would have said, let no love poem ever come to this threshold. There is no place here for this inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body. There is only blah, blah, blah. And and they would have stopped, right? right. Um, they would have said it there in a single line. And it still would have been so it's a really great poem, <laughs> but but she she pushes it past past the easy graces and sensuality of that stanza,
1: mm-hmm. right? Yes.
3: She, she goes. She moves away from like that long. There is no place here for the inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body. Also, what they suffered, how they lived. Right. She says, "I'm not going to end this poem." on even a lovely sound, and in which darkness it can best be proved.
1: Yeah, there is something to like that, that fragment, like the inventory as like sort of fragments, but that are also like of the whole, there's a way in which the fragment sort of enacts the inventory, but like the speaker's not letting you into that, right? Like how that, like all of these things are the constituent parts of the inventory, but you the reader, like however far you are removed from this, pair, this pair's death in 1847, like you don't get access to that. Yeah. And actually like knowing that you don't get access to that is how this whole thing works, right? It's like why it is like more than just a love poem.
2: There's, there's so much um, <laughs> those winter Sunday ness <laughs> of the poem, right? Like, the, this is the idea that we're, we're given a scenario, we're given these people, and we don't have access to their lives. But we kind of know their lives, right? We know there was some working the man did, and they walked, and they did all these like domestic things with her, they're close, and she was ill, but we don't really know them at all, right? The same way in Robert Hayden's poem, we know his father worked, we know he watched his father, we know there was an intention, we don't really know anything else about the the relationship. Same thing for this poem. Like We're given these things, right? They suffered, they lived, how they lived, which we don't really know how they lived, right? She had a fever, a famine fever, couldn't keep up. Oh, okay, couldn't keep up, right? Like, oh, of hunger, of all these things, but we don't really know about them. But if the way she's presenting these things to us I feel like I know so much about them. And I think it's because of the out-to-in to, to out-to-in mm-hmm. she constantly does in every stanza. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And sometimes it can feel um, really risky and rebellious to describe something ugly and horrible. And other times it can feel like, you know, exploitative tragedy porn. And, mm-hmm. and I think the fact that, that she not only resists that but actually calls it out and then the poem itself is an enactment of that negation is so powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I am really also just like intrigued, I think, to your point, Luther, like all of the details we know about them too are sort of in relation to the quarantine, right? Like sick with famine, fever, like that whole that whole second stanza are like really the only details we get about them sort of individually as people. And they're all sort of in relation to this broader force. And, that seems interesting because like I'm I'm in awe of like poems like this where like I feel like to make you know, you're told to like sort of give details as a way to like make it um, visceral for your reader so that they can connect and have something to hook onto. But this poem in like so many ways is like utterly devoid of that. Uh-huh. But, like but it is so moving, you know, like yeah. it still does the that except yeah.
0: for moments like her feet were held against his breastbone. Like that is so particular Mm and I, you mentioned the word visceral, like I feel that, I feel my body curving. And so, Yeah. yeah, it's not that the poem is totally devoid of that, but it's used so sparingly that when it does appear, it's even more charged. There's a lot of pressure on those moments
1: yeah and it but like even that moment is not so much about them like it isn't a description of well maybe it is it feels like um it feels evocative like it is like it is me to your point like it is me putting myself like it is suddenly me or my lover's feet right like as much as it is like these two people's feet against the breastbone it's like suddenly i've placed myself in that position and, which is yeah a different move yeah i don't understand
0: <laughs> I keep looking at the sentence he was walking m dash they were both walking M- dash north and the syntax of that and the correction and i'm so intrigued by what seems to be the poet's impulse to almost erase the wife in the beginning or i don't know what what do you make of that like syntactical choice that he that then becomes the they what is, how do y'all read that?
3: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I take that as, like you said, as a correction, right? And, and this idea of, um, of seeing them um, as a, as a, it, it, that's kind of the moment where it like leans into a love poem, right? Like, no, They. You know that not not the two of them, not him and her, but they um, are are together
1: mm-hmm. in
3: this in this horror and And so I think that's our sort of first i don't know inclination towards that in the poem and that's that's how I read it. I was just thinking about um the adjectives in the poem, and when I when I'm writing a poem, I I'm always telling my students and I'm always telling myself that like any adjective I use to describe the tree also has to describe what is central to the poem, you know, which is this situation, this couple, this moment in history, right? And there are very few adjectives in this poem. And um I'm trying to trace them through, but for me, one of them is this moment. Until at nightfall, under freezing stars, they arrived, and I think in some ways she's adding like another layer of of hardship to this moment, right? Like you need to understand not only were they starving and they were sick, but it was also really cold. Um, But there, Mm. that's like a moment of um, of sparkle. Not only the stars, you know, these frozen sparkling stars, Mm. but also like in a poem that is so devoid of adjectives, I think you have to really pay attention when a poet then then throws one in right it's not it's not haphazard it's not random there's really you know some some purpose there so i don't know that's the word and in many ways like the line that i keep coming back to Hmm. and they arrived
1: Mm-hmm. What do you guys make of the form, the second line sort of indent?
2: I was thinking about that actually, too. I don't know what to make of the indentation yet. Um, part of me just said just trying to continue the, the narrative of the first line, but I'm not too sold on that, and it seems like an easy thing to do. Um, but mm-hmm. I was thinking about the form because I was thinking about the idea that it's in five stanzas. Isn't it? Wait, wait, wait. Hmm. Yeah, an idea of like tragedy happens in five acts. So I think about that a lot and how this comes with a tragedy. Um, but to your point about the indentation, I'm not too sold on my thought of it continuing the narrative of the first line. Um, but I can be argued that it's correct. I can be argued that it's not correct.
3: Yeah. For, for me, it seems like one of those impulses where it's like, let's take a form that, that appears very classical and uh, let's do something with it that um, that a classical poet would never do, mm-hmm. right? Let's write about something the classical poet would never touch, you know with a ten vote pole truly would never would never touch these people's lives. right And it seems like the tension between those two things is at play? yeah.
0: it it enacts a certain sort of predictable waddle or limp or like stutter step into like the visual experience of reading that for me works really well in tandem with this idea of these people slogging through and this you know the scene that we're given it's very much a a limping sort of scene, and so it makes sense to me as someone who thinks a lot about you know the visual in a stanza shape and how that's working with content. Yeah. But I, you know, I could just be making that up.
3: Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense to me as well. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Kaitra, for bringing in this poem. Uh, for sitting with us and talking about quarantine just generally um, thank you to The Flavor Blue for our theme music, for everyone who's listening, rating, subscribing, listening to the podcast, wherever you are, all around this big wild globe. Don't forget- Even if you're in
0: the bathtub.
1: (laughs) Be careful though. Don't forget (laughs) to rate us and review us on uh, iTunes and uh, Stitcher think we're the only people who've talked this much about stitcher For sure <laughs> anywhere on um don't forget to follow us on twitter at poet pod uh send along your favorite writing prompts uh, to the poet salon pod at gmail.com. Be well in Washington. You wanna weaponize
2: this? Gonna show you these hands. Gonna take on these streets. Gonna show you who's mad. Cause my crew mob steady. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and, spaghetti, feddy and the. Whew, sp-